Alex Hall. Hello. Hello. Hi. You've been filming all this week. Yeah. Is this yes, filming we, we Need Answers? No. No, Ooh. that was all filmed in a batch in about four hours. What I'm doing, I'm filming a documentary for uh, later in the year. Yeah. Are you allowed to tell me more? Um, yes. Cool. I think so. It's, it's exciting. It's my first documentary and it's about um, old sports that have died, but we're trying to, or well, I'm trying to bring back, or not necessarily bring back, but see why they've died. It's kind of the uh, evolution of sports and why some have made it and some haven't focused in particular on a sport called cricket on horseback. Whoa. Yeah. Hang on. Is it a bit like polo? I'm briefly interrupting to let you know that I'm Marsha from yesyesmarsha.com and this is from a series of interviews that I did from 2009 to 2011 called Marsha Meets, which were long-form interviews with stand-up comedians that eventually inspired the book Off the Mic, The World's Best Stand-Up Comedians Get Serious About Comedy. That book's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. Back to the interview. Is it a bit like polo? Yeah, polo is... Hockey on horseback. This is cricket on horseback, which is, I think, tougher, more dangerous and more ridiculous. That's the plan. Surely it's hard for a horse to turn yeah. that sharply. Oh, everything about it. The more you think about it, the more impossible it is. And there were just a few games played in the 19th century and we're trying to... Well, I've never been on a horse, so I, it's my job to do it. But, so even though you've never been on a horse, you've got to recreate it? Yeah, well, I have been on a horse once, but I was recovering from diarrhoea. And so I put it out of my mind. I just don't count that as... It was horrible. Every bounce. <laughs> just Anyway, yeah. So I'm going to be playing along with combination of cricketers and horse riders it's kind of in the venn diagram there's very few cricketers that also ride horses or or vice versa so they've got to learn as well yeah the cricketers are going to be on tame almost dead horses <laughs> and the horse riders are going to be on the the ones that can actually get the runs but won't be able to hit the ball yeah, okay it'll be a low scoring game so when do we get to see this uh it's autumn and on what uh, bbc4 right yeah yeah that's wicked i think and what's so. it going to be called do you know i think the working title is alex horn which i'm pleased about presents Cricket on Horseback and Other Forgotten Games. It's quite a long title. But it means it explains it very well. Yeah. Yeah, it was going to be called It's All Fun and Games Until Someone Loses an Eye, but that was a bit twee. So, um, yeah, we're just going for the bald, bold Cricket on Horseback statement. But also, not only does it explain what it does well, but it's intriguing. That's what we think. I mean, I think when I read in, in this book that Cricket on Horseback was played, I immediately wanted to see it. So that's what we're trying to get across. I would, even though you've told me so much detail, I'm now desperate yeah, yeah. to see it. Well, just imagine the wicketkeeper and uh, the three slips on horses. Do they have really long bats? Well, it's up to us. In the um, all the historical documents, there's no description of the rules, so it's up to us to work it out. So we're going to have slightly lengthier stumps and a slightly lengthier handle on the bat, but the stumps have to be soft, so in case someone falls in them. Right. And the ball has to be slightly softer in case you whack a horse. So that's going to be on BBC Four, which is the home of We Need Answers. Yeah. So you record it all in one batch. Yeah, actually, it was over four weeks. We prepared for four weeks, recorded for four weeks, and that was that was it. How often do you do like one a day? Almost. It's very dull, but the statistics were three in one week, then another three, then two in the next week, then four in the final week. How long does it take each Something one? Like They're half an hour long when they go. Out. Yeah, we try to do it as live, so it probably takes an hour and a half to film. We really don't want to, because it used to be a live show, and so we think we can make it. You know, we don't think we need to film for hours and then distill it down to half an hour. We, our ultimate ambition is to do it live on BBC Four, and there's a chance. That's what we're really pushing for. There's so little live TV. Does BBC Four do anything live? No, yet, not yet. Mm-hmm. But we think, you know, it's like the news. It can't be that hard. Right. <laughs> so, uh, and it looks so sh- sort of shambolic anyway and uh, rough around the edges. We might as well make it really rough. Is there ever anything that you have to cut out? Yeah, I mean, Mark swears a lot. Tim is Tim falls off the chair. 
nothing worse Are you than not that. allowed to swear? It's on it after the watershed, isn't it? It Sorry, is, but BBC Four repeats a lot, so they want it to be able to go pre-watch. Okay. Yeah. But I like that as well because I think it is the kind of show that can appeal to a wide range of yeah, people. Yeah, we actually did a, we did a version with kids. We didn't, it's not going out, it's going on the website. And it, it stood up to it so we just treated it very seriously and they tried to play along and it was really good fun. Was it? Yeah. So what were the differences between the kids ones and the adults ones? Um, well, they didn't understand some of the words. Like we asked them how many, um, how long would it take to drink Lake Windermere? And uh, it's just funny how kids' minds, well, first of all, they didn't know what Windermere was but once they established that it was a lake basically the kids said no that's that's ridiculous it's impossible they, they just wouldn't you know give it the thought that a celebrity contestant would they just wouldn't give an answer they said no it's just impossible that's it that's the end of it was there anything that they were more creative or that they were more no not really but we took it seriously they took it seriously as well like one of the things was oh, you had to guess a minute how long a minute had passed with a bucket on your head you take the bucket off once a minute had gone but there was a girl doing this one and she kind of missed interpreted the rules she thought it was how long can you keep a bucket on your head for so she just refused to take this bucket off so it was up to about eight minutes and we kept saying no you can take it off and she thought it was a trick so she just sat there with this bucket and i mean if that was going out live it might be dull but it might be kind of weirdly gripping it was at the time it was it was very funny but also felt like child abuse (laughs) um so we should probably explain what it is uh, for someone who hasn't seen it so this is the show that you do it's on bbc4 it's at the moment we're about two-thirds of the way through the yeah, series, second so. series. Um, yeah. Tuesdays at ten or ten thirty. Yeah, I mean it's pretty vague. People think it's called Weenie Dancers. This is a big problem. Everyone keeps tuning in for little dancers. This genuinely, we've had lots of people saying, "Where are the Weenie Dancers?" But it's We Need Answers because it's all based on a, a text answering service. So all the questions come from one of these text answering services. Do you know these things? Yeah, yeah. It's the AQA. is yeah. the famous one. Six, yeah, I think I'm not allowed to say which one it is, but it's that one. Okay. Yeah. So, was there complications with that? With no, the BBC? surprisingly not. We had to uh, test out three and work out which was the best one, and it genuinely was. And we credit them in the... We're not allowed to say it in the show, but we can... I think we can in this sort of thing. And uh, so we've got access to their database. We can use any of these questions, and the more random... The, well, the less suited they are to a quiz, the better they are to our quiz, I think. So it's things like, uh, what's the telephone number of the swimming pool in Ipswich? Something like that. So suddenly when you put that on telly in a quiz, it becomes ridiculous and hopefully funny. And do you ever send them your own questions? Not deliberately, no. We, we're really keen that they're not written as funny questions. That They're funnier, I think, if we scoop them up without thinking of them in a comic way. Now, I've got a friend who works for them really? answering the questions. It's a great yeah. job. Yeah. yeah. And one of the things that I love when she's shown me the database is mm. the questions that are like, is he going to call me back? Yeah, yeah, Or, yeah. you know, should I break up with my girlfriend? Well, they've got a policy of always saying something, always giving an opinion. If they say, who should I vote for, they will say whichever party they think they won't say you should vote for whatever you think best and yeah if they say should i get divorced they'll say yes if uh, it sounds like you should which i love as well if you know it's an entity rather than a machine i text them pretty much every day because i get a certain amount of free ones and uh yeah i live my life by it i can't think of any life-changing well i think i asked them what i should name my kid and then we named it no we didn't do that no. but um <laughs> I've written a book, and uh, a lot of the research comes from that. Oh, really? Which is slightly embarrassing. Oh, wicked. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, I'm going to come back to the book, because first okay. of all, I want to ask, We Need Answers. Yeah. It started as a live show, as you mentioned, at the Edinburgh Festival. That's right. Yeah, it was a midnight drunken mess. And it's you? It's me, Mark Watson, and Tim Key, and we were all friends from university, and uh, it was just an excuse for us to piss about. Can I say piss about? Yeah, yeah, piss you can about. say anything you like. Piss about late at night with a loose format, and uh, it was two comedians competing together, and it was a cup competition. So we had three rounds and it was just a lot of fun and it managed to get some momentum. I think because it wasn't designed for telly, it was just a, a live bash 
And then uh, the BBC got wind of it, never came to see it, but sort of said, do you want to do that on telly? So we said, why not? And yeah. So that was in 2007? Yeah. It was sort of the least of all the shows we've ever planned to do, but the most successful. Yeah. And at the same time, you were doing your show, Bird Watching. I was, yes. Uh, God, you, you're good. Yeah, <laughs> you've been stalking. No, <laughs> um, well researched. Outside your house. Mm. Tell me about bird watching. Bird watching was uh, my dad's a bird watcher, and I, I'm not, so I find it hilarious that he does spend his life looking out the window at birds. So I thought I should credit him with some intelligence. So I spent a year with him trying to work out why he does what he does, and we had a competition who could see the most species in a year. And uh, it was partly me trying to understand my dad, partly me trying to learn how to be a dad because I was just about to be one. But mainly, I thought there's going to be some pretty funny stuff come out of it so uh, the show is the tale right and uh, there's a bit of tension who's going to win and there's some jokes weren't you into bird watching when you were little up to the age of five and three quarters oh okay yeah i was a member of the yoc <laughs> which is now called the young something else they've changed the name which i'm very angry about what was yoc the young ornithologist club right is much a better name than young explorers club or whatever it is yeah i had the badge with an osprey on and but that was forced on me that was dragged to these wetland centers and uh, i think i i thought i enjoyed it but i didn't and then i turned six and got into more sociable things like football and powerpoint and so did you get into it when you did this show yeah reluctantly i mean you can't help it's like watching big brother like if you watch it for a week you will get into it and bird watching is the same really so i am now approaching the level of bird watching there's about five levels of bird watcher and i'm about probably the second rung how do you define well you start off as a, a robin stroker which is someone who feeds the birds in the garden then you get bird watcher uh, which is what i am somebody who pays attention and can't help if you hear a, a sound you'd not expecting you'd look for it and uh, try to work out what it is sort of involuntarily then you get a birder and then it's an actual hobby that's what my dad is then you get ornithologist then sciences what's a twitcher twitcher is a different breed entirely if you call a bird watcher a twitcher they'll get angry a twitcher is somebody more like a plane spotter it's more boring and anal and they have a list of birds that they've seen in their life and they will go to any length to increase that list but was that not what you were doing with your dad yes <laughs> Yeah, I was a twitcher for a year. Yeah, my dad never made a list before. This was this was new to him. But I, you know, I quite like lists. Yeah, yeah, they're well spotted. That's... Did you get obsessive about it? Like, did you uh, did you I start to, to annoy your friends? Yeah, I ruined a stag. I Mark Watson stag actually. Did I, you? We went to Wales and uh, I took binoculars and apparently that was frowned upon on a stag. But I we found a kestrel sort of hovering somewhere, and uh, half the stag were quite into it. Really? And wanted to look through the binoculars, and the other half just got. I rate. I think that's good. I think that's going to be different from most other stags, and that's what you want on a stag. Yeah, isn't it? I think other stags you sort of shoot things rather than <laughs> yeah. look at them. Yeah, I mean, yeah, lots of people are secret birders. I think. Oh really? And uh, yeah, as soon as you mention it, they say, "Yeah, I'm actually quite into it." Like people like Bill Bailey, he's got a program on at the moment about it, and suddenly it's becoming quite cool again. Do you ever spot other people there? Do you ever kind of walk down the street and think, oh, "I can see you"? Bird watching, watching. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I do. Yeah, there is a look. But there's also birdwatching festivals. I went to the bird fair in Rutland, and that's incredible. That's like Glastonbury, but for birdwatchers. And yeah, that's a that's a sight. What goes on? It's incredible. You wouldn't believe it. There's about sort of ten thousand people, all with binoculars around their necks, because it's wow. in a proper birding area. And if if something rare is seen, then everyone just troops off. Wow! And it's... people compare binoculars, and ah, oh, it's amazing. That's like going to Glastonbury, going, oh, the white stripes playing in this secret. Yeah, yeah it's exactly. But it's like, like there's yeah, there's beards everywhere and. Oh, it's, yeah, I can't really do it justice. It's it's phenomenal. So you've always done quite interesting shows, say, you. you know, for your Edinburgh <laughs> show. Have you, from the beginning, your first Edinburgh show was in 2000. I did a show about then, which was, uh, I think, awful. It was a sketch show with two really good people, but we were young and idiotic, and we didn't rehearse it and thought we'd go up and take Edinburgh by storm, and it was called How to Avoid Huge Ships. And it was three of us, 
trying to be funny. And then at the end, we revealed that we were actually on a submarine all the time. And we thought this would be an amazing, but it was, oh, it was awful. But so, yeah, so I did that. Did that give you a bad taste for Edinburgh? Because you didn't go back no, for a few years. No, not at all. No, no, we were just, I think I was 18. You know, it was just a whole, it was the best month of my life. You know, it was, it was amazing. And I watched lots of things and uh, saw how people, how you meant to do it. What was your comedy like when you started? Because you started young. Well, I guess so. At university, which is it's a lucky time to start because you don't have to, you know, hopefully you can do it enough so that by the time you turn professional, you're still young enough not to have responsibilities. It was deliberately wacky and surreal. And I always had a bag with me as a sort of security blanket. I used to come on with a bag, like a suitcase, and put it down and then walk off. That was my gimmick. I always wanted the audience to ask me what was in it, and then they never did. But I think I had a joke about it, but I've forgotten it now. Do you remember your very first gig? Yes. Was this the cracker competition thing? In a way. Okay. <laughs> is that officially? Uh, Hang on, will you explain what it was? It's a, oh, yeah, I worked in Budgeons, in the supermarket Budgeons, when I was... Uh, I went to university, then left university, then went back. And in that sort of second gap year stage, I worked... I was deputy head of dairy. There was two of us in the department, and I was the least important person but whilst there there was a competition to see who could write the best christmas cracker joke for the budgeons christmas crackers and i wrote my first joke and print which was monday tuesday wednesday thursday friday saturday sunday oh those were the days that was my first joke and it won the competition and i got a gig at an open spot however if you read <laughs> my book word watching there's more to that story which i can't really reveal here that's fine yeah that's but that's my pr line on how i got into stand-up right but and that's partly because my actual story that's an embellishment. The actual story is very dull. Oh, that, really? I went to Cambridge, went to Footlights, and got into it that way. Do you remember your first gig, though, that wasn't in front of other students that was the first kind of scary? Uh, yeah, it was a BBC competition, because, yeah, in those days, you had to send off a cassette with your ramblings. So I'd be in my room at university talking into it, thinking I was being funny, and then uh, I managed to get into this competition. I can vaguely... I haven't thought about this for years, but, yeah, my parents came, my brother... And uh, and I didn't get through, and they were pretty angry. I remember really? that. Yeah. What with the judges? Just everyone. Yeah, the people who didn't laugh. I don't think it was that bad. It was in something called the Cosmic Comedy Club, which is shut. And Anvil Springsteen compared it. Yep. But I think I was just uh, an annoying pseudo surreal Eddie Izzard impressionist, really. So your well, the next show that you did in Edinburgh mm. was um, this show that you did with Tim Key. Yeah, it's called Making Fish Laugh. It was a scientific. <laughs> It was based on some lectures that happened in 1976 about, about laughter. Some, the first ever international conference on humour and laughter that was held in Cardiff. And I got hold of this book whilst at Cambridge and thought this is the basis of a show instantly. With Edinburgh, you kind of know, as soon as you've hit on a good idea for a show, you know it, and th this was it. So we recreated some of their experiments on the audience, took it very seriously. So what were examples of the... Well, there, according to the scientists, there were ten stimuli that make babies laugh that can then be the basis for all jokes. So there's... There's a mild shock, can't be too severe, but a mild shock, uh, repetition, incongruity, tickling, jogging, apparently not running to sort of bouncing, coincidence, I can't remember them all. So we went through all them and tried to show how, so Tim tickled people. I was just about to ask. Yeah. What about, did someone jog people? Uh, yeah, we bounced someone. Right. Yeah, and we, we rated the audience on how funny they were, or how what their sense of humour was like each night. Right. And uh, apparently you can tell what sort of a person someone is. By their laughter rating. And it did very well. You got nominated for Perrier Best Newcomer. Yeah, it was a fortuitous kind of start to Edinburgh. It made me think that it's quite easy. And uh, yeah, it was just a good topic, really. It kind of caught 
people's imagination. And did getting the nomination make a substantial difference? Yeah, in that I then got booked for long sets in comedy clubs, which I couldn't fill because you can't really do science stuff in jonglers. So um, it's interesting. Yeah, it's very odd. If you get nominated, people suddenly think, oh, he must be really good. And I definitely wasn't necessarily. It's just that it was a good show with Tim, you know. And you took the show out to Singapore as well. Yeah. Basically, we did the show. And after about the fourth night, someone from the Singapore Comedy Festival, the inaugural Singapore Comedy Festival, said, do you want to do this show at my festival? And we said yes. And two months later, we were there doing it. And so I thought this is, you know, this is going to happen every year, every every month. But I then didn't go anywhere except for the Isle of Man for four years. Um, but that, it was it was amazing. What's it like? We did the show in Raffles, and uh, they're very clean uh, society. Really, there's no chewing gum, for example, and no swearing, and that suits me perfectly. Oh, I like chewing gum, but um, but they were very educated and they speak English and they were very polite. It's a perfect comedy audience for me. With the sense of humour, you know, did they yeah, laugh they at laugh stuff? Yeah, they slightly different things. They laugh more at embarrassment, that's their... If you can embarrass one audience member, the rest love it. OK. You, you'll anger that one person, but the rest will really enjoy it. And so that it's perfect for the show. You know, we said this is experiments that were done on Welsh people. Will they work on Singaporean people? And so it added an element to it, which, uh, yeah, was good. So the next show, usually I wouldn't kind of ask someone about every single year of their every single... That's specific, right. but, only a few. No, but then all of yours, are, I'm so interested in asking about... So the next one, Everybody Talks. Yes. Was that with Tim as well? It was with Tim. The first three were with Tim before he became too successful and too expensive for me to badger. But um, yeah, it was a body language seminar. It was a spoof sort of... Inter- it was called the 2004 International Body Language Seminars. And uh, we looked at the four areas of human body language and uh, we secretly filmed the audience from under Tim's table and analysed how people were reacting to the show. Hang on, so at what point did you reveal that you were doing that? About 42 minutes. What, would you just go through the tape and go when we were saying this? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, Tim had a sort of... I mean, it was quite uh, shoddy, because Tim is useless with anything technological. But uh, yeah, he just pressed record at certain moments and we played it back. And then the next one... Was about Latin. When in Rome. So this was the last one you did with Tim. Yeah, two weenie dancers, yeah. Yeah, this is uh, our last double acty thing. We taught people Latin in, in an hour. Right. Up to GCSE standard. Was it successful? Yeah. Actually, one person went on and took lessons after it and has since got... We stayed in touch. He did GCSE, homeschooling, got an A star, then did A level, got an A, and then I met him in Leeds in filming Countdown. We were both contestants, just by complete chance. He was a contestant before me, and he had to beat this other person to then play me, and he won, so then it was me versus him. Wow. Yeah, and I beat him. I was so pleased. <laughs> were with, you? Yeah. Jeremy, he's called. I'm going to come back to Countdown, because you also, when you were doing the, this show, well, around it, you met the Pope. Yeah, I met the Pope, shook hands with the Pope. I wanted to speak to um, somebody who spoke Latin, and being the head of the Vatican, he was the obvious choice. And if you marry a Catholic, you can meet the Pope. You have an audience with the Pope within a year. So I then went off and married a Catholic. So it's got to be, like, I got christened Catholic, so could I meet oh, the Pope Oh, you're fine, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I see. Oh, really? Yeah, 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 you'll be fine. You okay. can go on a Wednesday after his sort of address. It used to be that you go and kneel in front of him, and he sort of blesses you by touching your head. But nowadays, the security's tightened, so you're in a certain cordoned-off area. You're meant to wear all your wedding gear. So my wife wore her wedding dress, and I wore a suit, and Tim was in the audience. The audience was about 5,000 people, so he was filming it, and I was filming it as well with a handheld thing. Wow. So he came towards me, and I, he shook hands with me and Rachel, and I said, Salve Papa, which was my Latin sentence, which means, Hello, Pope. <laughs> and uh, he sort of looked at me and glared, and that was it. Oh, really? So he didn't, he didn't look pleased? He didn't look that pleased, but he... uh, I think it was you know, thinking holy thoughts. 
But thinking back, I had I could have sort of yanked him off. That that sounds. I yanked him out into the crowd and ran off with him. Or hit him over the head with a camcorder. Yeah, I could have done it, but I had nothing against him. Nice enough. He was Um, actually quite. um, Because I'm not religious in the slightest, but he was surprisingly moving to meet him. Oh really? Yeah. In what sense? Well, because he's he's probably the most famous person I've met. In that he's famous the world over, and he's you know the head of the church or the Catholic Church. But also these people. Well, we'd queued up for hours and hours and hours. Blazing hot day in Rome, in the Vatican. and people were in floods of tears to finally see people had travelled the world over to, to meet him, and I was there just cheekily trying to speak Latin to him. But um, he had some. He had an aura. He is literally the most famous person in the world, isn't he? I don't think he's alive. The most rec- I think you'd walk past him and not recognise him if he wasn't wearing his garb. Oh yeah, I guess so. But who's more famous than the Pope? I mean, I think the Pope as a figure, you know, rather than his yeah. actual name, is up there. Pope, the Queen, the President, you know, they're all <laughs> up there. If you're doing sort of world figure top trumps, I think he'd win on some levels. You also did the show for kids. Didn't oh, you? I went around schools with it. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That was, it was kind of the same show, but we went to schools and just to promote Latin. I mean, I really love Latin, and the idea was to show that it can be fun and not cool. I wouldn't ever call myself cool, but uh, amusing and not just dry and boring. Was it pretty much the same show? Yeah. How was it doing stand-up for kids? It was great. I really enjoyed it. I had, you had to adapt things. You have to leave a long pause after a punchline. Why is that? And you have to tell them that it's a joke. I don't know why it is. I think kids are stupid. <laughs> no, they're not stupid, but they um, they just react in very different ways, and they have to think things through more. And they don't—they're not used to the rhythms of jokes, and they don't expect you to do jokes. I think if you're an adult, right? Like I think I started by saying, right, first of all, I'll tell you a bit about my background. Um, I've got a screen behind me, so that was the joke, and they would just literally think, yeah, that's his background. You know, they wouldn't understand <laughs> right. that that was a pun. They would just think he's told me a bit about his background. <laughs> And so did you have to learn that on the job? As yeah, it were? yeah, the first few was, yeah, were stickier, but the show was quite farcical. It was girls versus boys learning Latin and it ended up with a Latin tug of war where, I can't really, anyway, they had to say Latin words back and forth and uh, you go a step forward every time, anyway. Right. So, um, so the kids got behind that. Would If you put girls versus boys in a classroom, you're fine. But that's an amazing thing to do, just because, just generally, you know, I have a listener friend who's at school and she's always on Twitter at school and so bored with it and then every mm. now and then they'll have something in the classroom that's different and it's not even you know necessarily a funny thing but just doing anything that isn't learning is... yeah they are a willing audience yeah anything's better than school so it, it was more and more fun the trouble is you know the only point of doing it is to raise the awareness of Latin for me really except for having a laugh and the only schools that could pay to have a show were private schools that already promote Latin we would have preferred to go to state schools but I can do a certain amount of things for free but not um, right yeah okay yeah, it's good fun um, and so then after that, okay, there was like a couple of years where you didn't go to Edinburgh. There was one year. Yeah. Or was it just one year? And um, kind of around that time, you started doing this other project. Oh, yeah, yeah. Owen Powell. The World in One City project. Yeah, that was a project. That was kind of the thing that's taken up the most amount of my time ever and has had the least follow-on things, but was probably the most enjoyable and the most, probably the thing I'm most proud of in some ways. So we tried to meet someone from every country in the world in London in a year. Living in London. Yeah, it was meant to be a sort of anti... Uh, terrorism thing it was meant to be like a positive showing that cosmopolitanism is good and foreign people in your country is good so we met 189 countries representatives out of 192 in a year in a year how did you do it we went up to people who looked different to us and said are you foreign (laughs) if so where are you from pretty much that's how we started wow was that ever well Well, being sort of you know white and middle class yeah but yeah we're quite bumbling like hopefully we look more like kids doing a project than uh, BMP people. But we, yeah, we first of all targeted those people who hold um, 
boards in London saying golf sale and stuff because they've got very little else to do. So you can talk to them. And they were mainly from uh, Pakistan. We weren't allowed to go to embassies because that's officially foreign soil. So that wouldn't count as being in London. But we could uh, linger in enclaves of London where... I mean, there, there are places famous for having certain nationalities living there. Like Kilburn has a lot of Irish people, for example. So um, we plotted a bit of a geographical map over London. And uh, it sort of built up momentum. And people tended to have foreign friends. One thing we learned was that most foreign people tended to say they didn't have many English friends. But they had friends from around the world in London. And they said it was very difficult to make friends with English people, which is quite sad. That is a bit. Although not that surprising to me. Probably not, because most of them were here for a few years. They had to be here for at least a year to count as living here, right. according to our rules. But they said most people weren't bothered about making friends with people who might leave again. Also, just I think Londoners generally aren't that friendly with strangers. Yeah. From my experience. Yeah, we kind of <laughs> found out. I mean, we didn't have any negative... One shop we went into said, just out of interest, do you have anyone here from Equatorial Guinea? Because they were hard to find. And he said, uh, no, but we don't have any English people here either. All our jobs have gone, you know, was implying that all the jobs were taken by these bloody foreigners. Right. But apart from that, everyone was very welcoming and open. Was it ever awkward? Did you ever go up to anyone and say, are you foreign? And they'd say, no, I'm from here, you know. Yeah, no, it's never as awkward as you might think. You know, people were quite... I mean, the Caribbean countries are quite interesting because it's always... People are now second generation because people came over in the 60s and so people our age are British, but their parents are still Caribbean. Did they have to have been born in the other country to... They had to have a passport from the other right. country. Right, OK. So, there's, yeah, it's delicate, but as long as you know a little bit about... I mean, we learned a lot about geography and diplomacy, but we didn't get punched. You met some amazing people. Yeah, we did. Yeah, we met people from all walks of life, models, priests. Didn't you meet someone who was ex-KGB? Yeah, she was from Kazakhstan. Irina, she was called, and she was amongst the most fascinating. We met a Hare Krishna lady who was from Croatia and came over to watch Goran Ivanisevic play at Wimbledon. So she was a tennis-loving Hare Krishna. That was good. Yeah, no, there were so many stories, but, but the stories still exist on the blog. Which I, is, what's the address of the blog? I mean, Worldandonecity.blogspot.com link... OK, but there's a link through from your website. Which yeah, is... the most interesting ones probably is countries like Tuvalu, which we didn't find. Uh, Where's Tuvalu? It's in the Pacific. It, right. There's a few Pacific islands we didn't find. Tuvalu, Palau and the Marshall Islands are the three we didn't find. But there are also three that may not be there in 10 years because of global warming. Oh, wow. Tuvalu made all their money by selling their internet domain name because it's .tv. So they oh, sold, yeah. They sold that and just about survived for a bit. But they're all fleeing. There's only 10,000 people in the country and they're all going to New Zealand because the country's Whoa. sinking. But they haven't come to here yet. We right. were hoping they would sink rapidly and they'd all come here, but they, they didn't. For a while, we, we all... A lot of us stayed in touch and we had a big picnic for everyone and we actually planned to have this big party supported by Ken Livingston. He was going to lend us Trafalgar Square and we're going to have this big map of the world and they would all stand in their countries. But then he didn't get elected and Boris is less open to foreigners, so that was a shame. Do you feel like you kind of got wisdom from that? I feel like just if you meet the more sort of different people that just one meets in life and... It was quite interesting because I'm very bad at politics, but like we met our Iraqi lady, Thani, and she. it was quite soon after Saddam had been found and killed and executed... And I don't really know what to think about that. You know, it seemed quite brutal to hang him, but then obviously he's not very nice. So she told me that she was overjoyed and all her family were out in the streets celebrating and were, were really pleased. And so for a while I thought, that's good, we've done a good thing going to Iraq. So I based all my political opinions on this one person, but then she might have been wrong. Yeah, I mean, I for a while I based everything on, on these individuals from these countries, but you forget that they're going to have political agendas as well. Another thing that you did around the same time is you were the first comedian to do a gig in Second Life. 
Yeah, by a few days. Okay, so Second Life, um, I think most people know, but in case they don't, it's like this weird... It's a sort of virtual world. You have an avatar and you exist in this world and you can buy... People made millions, apparently, selling virtual land and to other virtual characters. And you have dollars, Linden dollars, which uh, you can actually transfer into real money. And some people get very obsessed with it yeah, in a kind of world of Warcraft. Yeah, marrying yeah, new yeah. people, having so affairs. So I was asked to, asked to give it a go by Sky News and to do a gig there. And I'm quite, I'm pretty geeky, but even that, that was far too geeky for me. I really didn't enjoy it. So how did it work, the geek? Does it come up as letters on the screen? Or? No, you can have, you can speak You can talk, it. okay. Yeah, yeah, and, but, but people can heckle but then by people, typing. Would they say ha, 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 ha? Yeah, they would say know. ruffle and all that, and they can say worse things than that. Yeah, I mean, the gig itself was quite fun. It was an interesting experience, but I had to spend two weeks doing it, you know, having this second life, and I just gave me a headache. Because you are people. quite gadgety, generally. Yeah, I'm you? gadgety, but hopefully in a way that... Um, affects my first life right you know enhances that rather than takes me away from it so well we mentioned countdown earlier yeah the reason you went on countdown well the reason i went on it was because i love countdown genuinely that's i've always wanted to apply but the stimulus was a project called word watching which is and we should probably explain that you didn't go on it as alex horn the comedian sitting in dictionary corner no no no. i was a bona fide contestant i had to go through the contestant audition process which is an exam basically tell me about word watching Word watching is something I've done for f- almost exactly four years now. I've tried to get a word in the dictionary, and it's an ongoing thing. I won't say whether or not I've succeeded, but it's, you know, I want to get words in the language, embedded in the language, so the more you do it, the more chance there is of that. And these are words that you've made up? Me and a team of ten neologists, people who coin new words. Yeah, ten friends of mine, who uh, we've been doing it for the first few years secretly, which is trying to drop it. If I was having this chat with you, I would have dropped various words into the conversation and then recorded it and then sent that evidence to the dictionary. So what evidence does the dictionary need? They need uh, a corpus, that's what they call it, a corpus of evidence, proof that a wide range of people have used it for over three years. Okay. That's what the OED say. So what is involved in a corpus? All sorts of proof. Uh, Newspapers are ideal. Uh, The internet is less ideal because anyone can publish a word on it, but it's still good proof. You know, if you type your word into Google, you'll have instant evidence of how much a word is used. Books, TV, any sort of media, any examples, letters, Anything. So when, for instance, when you were doing the World in One City, yeah. you were doing tons of press for that. Yeah, so, so that were was you... very useful. Yeah, yeah. Right. I was, uh, anytime I was on TV or in, in the newspaper, I would try to slip in a word. I was on uh, BBC World with George Avagaya and said that everything in London is expensive and everything costs a lot of honk, which is our word for money. And he looked at me and there was a twinkle in his eye, acknowledging that it was a strange word to use, but he couldn't really... I think that would have been missing the point of, of right. the interview. So um, that was one of the highlights for me that is yeah. an impressive yeah uh, but if it's actually in the newspaper that means it's gone through the levels of editorship so that's a tougher call so countdown yeah how was countdown as an experience what did you Best have to do for the life. exam really Hang on. first of all what did you have to do for the exam there's nine of us around a table playing countdown the researcher reads out the letters and you just sit around playing it in silence but you have to be very honest as well because there's no one people weren't sort of guarding their piece of paper like kids do at a desk but um yeah you just play it very straight and uh they don't even ask you what you do for a living. They just, if you're good at it, you go on. If you're not, you don't. And how many programmes were you on? I won three, so I was on four. Wow, yeah. wow. And was it all done in one day? They filmed five a day, so you right. bring five changes of clothes, and uh, it's hilarious. That's amazing. Yeah. And what were the people like? Uh, like the presenters? They were wonderful. I was with Des O'Connor and Carol just before she left. Oh. And I, I've always wanted, I went to the same university as her, and I've been stalking her for years, and she was really nice, and her daughter was a researcher, and yeah, she was great. 
Okay. Honestly, I've got not a bad word to say about candy. Wow. Do you have any trophies from the day? Did I've got you keep a, any? A teapot, which I gave to my mum because she collects teapots. So right. I've got, uh, I won two dictionaries, t-shirt, my place name from my desk. These are my prized possessions. So word watching is a book. Um, book and watching. a tour show. And the tour... So it starts on Tuesday in Norwich. You're doing a lot of dates. Yeah, but quite bizarre places, village halls, as well as town halls as well as theatres. Is that chosen by you? Is yeah, that... I love village halls. Why yeah. do you love village halls? Because no one goes to village halls and, they, and the audiences are so grateful you've gone there. No matter how badly you do, they'll give you a clap. Have you ever had any odd experiences in them? No, I genuinely love village halls just because they are unique and they, everyone knows each other in the audience and they're kind of a team. And they are really giving and will get involved but never in a bad way in that you kind of sit and have lunch with them or dinner halfway through. Hang on, what, you stop the show, have dinner with them and then... Yeah, they normally serve dinner in the interval, like lasagna or something. <laughs> That's amazing. There's sort of 50 people there and I have to bring everything. I bring the equipment, all the sound system and the screen and, and sometimes you stay with the resident. That's very interactive. Yeah, no, it's lovely. Okay, so all the dates are up on your website. They are, yes. Alexhorn.com. Yeah, it's garish though and really... But very easy to use. Yeah, it's straightforward, but it's don't look at it for too long. So it's Horn with an E, Alex yep. Horn. Alex, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you like that, you'll probably love the book that I put together with Deborah Francis-White called Off the Mic, The World's Best Stand-Up Comedians Get Serious About Comedy. So asking them things like, what's your writing process? How do you find your voice? What do you think about touring? How do you deal with hecklers? We interviewed 42 stand-ups, including Eddie Izzard, Sarah Millican, Phil Jupiter, Stuart Lee, Mark Maron. It's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. If you want to find out more, go to Yes Yes Marsha.com forward slash off the mic.